This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The question isn't an all or nothing exchange of can we do nothing about potential threats that TikTok causes. The question is, is this solution that's put on the table in the Restrict Act the right one? Is it off by a mile? Is it off by an inch? Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Over the last few months, we've had a couple of conversations on our weekly roundups about the calls to ban TikTok in the United States, about the real concerns about sensitive user data in the hands of a foreign-owned company facing pressure from the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government and the potential for political interference. We even talked about a piece of legislation that would give the federal government the power to ban TikTok in the U.S. It's known as the Restrict Act. It was on a roundup in March, and last week, Montana became the first state to ban TikTok, citing the need to protect residents' private information and because of the potential threat posed by the Chinese government. And in response to both of these, civil liberties groups and defenders of First Amendment rights have raised some serious concerns about what that particular piece of legislation could mean for free speech rights. So I wanted to zoom in on the balance between legitimate U.S. national security concerns and our fundamental rights to free speech and how we could have constructive conversations about ensuring both our liberty and our security. So today I'm joined by two incredible guests who are going to help us do just that. Joe Cohn is the director of the Legislative and Policy Department at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, known as FIRE. He oversees their team of attorneys and staff that monitors and engages on legislation and regulation. He's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Law and the Fells Institute of Government Administration, where he earned his JD and a master's degree in government administration. Before joining FIRE, he was a staff attorney at the AIDS Law Project of Pennsylvania and was the interim legal director for ACLU affiliates in Nevada and Utah. I'm glad to have a fellow Nevadan on the show, Joe. Uh, And you, you may be the first guest to actually pronounce it right the first time. I am so pleased uh, to be here today, Ron, uh, and love being here with a fellow Nevadan. And returning to politicology is the one and only Hagar Shamali. Hagar is a former spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the U.N. She has also served as the spokesperson for the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence and was a senior policy sanctioned advisor at the Department of Treasury and a Middle East director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. She's also an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and the host and creator of Oh My World on YouTube, a show that breaks down geopolitics and world news stories in a fun and easy way. And she regularly offers commentary over on MSNBC. Hagar, welcome back. And when I say, oh, my world, I'm putting the exclamation point at the end. How did you like that? Right? Oh, my world, because world news is always insane. So thank you, Ron, for having me. I love being here. I'm very excited for today's conversation. So before we start off, I think we should talk a little bit about just the general principles in tension here between national security and the First Amendment. Are there instances where national security concerns could or have uh, trumped free speech? Joe, do you have any thoughts on how to set the table there? 
Sure. I, I think there are longstanding tensions between what you need to do to keep a nation secure and the principles of free speech, the general orientation to making sure that in free societies, we have access to information that can hold democratic officials accountable and our ability to speak our minds in ways to criticize the government. And these tensions aren't new. So, you know, you can go back to our founding, but I'm not going to go quite that far back in setting the table here. I'm only going to go back to 1911, you know, where you have the Defense Secrets Act of 1911 that criminalized the collection of information uh, from military installations and facilities and the sharing of sensitive information with those who didn't have the appropriate security clearance. So, you know, you, these tensions start seeing themselves you know, then, and of course you have the Espionage Acts of 1917 and Sedition Acts as well. And, you know, there you're talking about, you know, the United States and the heels of joining uh, World War One, prohibiting attempts to acquire defense-related information when those attempts were coupled with the intent to harm the United States. And that's, you know, acquiring any kind of sensitive uh, information, photographs, you know, you name it, the, the the types of documents. And, you know, that law also outlaws false statements intended to interfere with military operations. And importantly, the intent to uh, incite insubordination. And I know I'm going on a long monologue, so I'll try to, to, try to stop. But the last reason why I'm going down this road is because it tees up one of the important early court cases, the Espionage Act, which is Shank in the United States versus the U.S., which uh, a lot of people know without knowing that they know it um, because Shank versus the U.S. is the case where you get uh, the example that you can't shout fire falsely in a crowded theater. Um, but really what the case was doing in that instance is they were reviewing the conviction of Charles Shank and Elizabeth Baer um, for violating the Espionage Act when they tried to obstruct recruitment of the military trying to get soldiers with, you know, leaflets. The court says that, you know, in ordinary times that would be, you know, protected, but whether it's protected depends on the circumstances under which it's done. And then the the real money quote from the court here is the question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they'll bring about substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. And of course, that's no longer good law. You know, 1969, Brandenburg versus Ohio replaces it with the incitement, you know, test. Uh, but these tensions have been with us for a long time. And I'm going to pause there, even though obviously there's a lot more that's happened uh, since 1917 in national security and free speech law. But I bet, you know, you all have things you'd like to say and contribute. Yeah. Why don't we pause there and then Hagar maybe respond to that or just build on that in terms of sort of setting the table here, what listeners need to understand about the principles that are in tension here. You know, when I think about walking this fine line between national security and preserving civil liberties in the United States, and I have to caveat that I am not a legal expert, so I'm so happy that we have Joe here <laughs> to break this down. I, My experience in this has more to do with the collection of information than with how it infringes on free speech. Now, that's still relevant in this case, but when we've seen, at least in my, in my uh, experience in government, so that's dating from September 11 really onward. 
the experiences I've seen, the issues that have come up that have been controversial, where the ACLU or other advocacy organization groups or the American public in general is voices concerns about the sources and methods and operations of the U.S. national security system often has had to do with collection of information and things like spying on Americans or uh, uh, listening to them or collecting information on them or big data collection in general. And I should say that I come from, I came from an office that, uh, who's, which the sole purpose of which was to hunt down the the funds and networks and financial networks of terrorist organizations and their affiliates. And that's something you want the U.S. government to do. And sometimes those networks bleed into the United States. And actually, often they do, by the way. And it's not just terrorists, it's drug traffickers and proliferators of weapons of mass destruction and uh, uh, corruption, you name the type of criminal activity. And being on the other side, when I used to see these types of arguments, I used to think to myself, well, on one hand, I completely agree that the United States, we have to have a certain set of values, we have to have a certain set of systems, and Americans have to be protected. But the idea that the U.S. government was spying on all Americans, that they would have the time and resources to do that without some kind of stated purpose or a goal to prevent crime or to prevent a terrorist act or whatever it might be, the idea that that's what they were doing was just wrong. And having been on the other side, I could say that, but that's not something, I don't think the government communicates this very well at all, by the way. And so the thing that I push back on is that I do tend to favor the argument for national security and homeland security because I've seen it in action. And I have not seen, from my own experience, information be abused or exploited in a way that wasn't intended to secure Americans, to protect them, to advance national security objectives. And that's why, so I'm living, I'm coming from the world, that world. And so when you had something like Ed Snowden come out, the, Ed, uh, the, when he came out and he leaked the sources and methods of how the National Security Agency was collecting its information, which I thought was catastrophic, by the way, um, that, that to me highlights this issue of where that walking that fine line between U.S. national security, how we go about ensuring uh, our national security objectives are achieved, how we go about ensuring everyone in the United States remains protected from a range, a wide range of threats, and at the same time, not encroaching on, on the inherent civil liberties and privacy issues that Americans are have a right to. Um, so it's difficult, it's controversial, but I just, I do believe there's an argument there that, uh, that caveats c- can and are made when it comes to preventing crime taking place in the United States. So, uh, okay, this is super helpful, and this is exactly what I wanted to do in this conversation. And before we get to, to, to TikTok, um, you, you brought up one of the most prominent examples of this tension that we're talking about in recent history, which is the case of Edward Snowden. So Snowden, for everyone who's listening who may not have been tuned in at the time, was a subcontractor working for the NSA who blew the whistle on several top-secret very broad surveillance programs run by the NSA. They included the mass collection of telephone metadata under Section 215 of the Patriot Act, the PRISM program, 
that collect stored internet communications based on demands made to the internet companies, including Microsoft, Yahoo, Google, Facebook, YouTube, AOL, Skype, all the ones that you use, including Apple. After the leak, Congress passed the USA Freedom Act to modify parts of the Patriot Act, including ending the bulk collection of metadata. And it required the data be stored with phone providers and searchable only after getting a court order from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, known as FISC, or the FISA court, you might have heard, for a specific selection term. And the NSA is still collecting lots of records of phone calls and text messages, including almost 550 million in 2017. And that was a threefold increase over 2016. So since we put that on the table, um, I have uh, um, uh, disclosed my very unpopular opinion among national security experts that uh, I was I was in favor of what Snowden did at the time, um, even though perhaps his method and the way he went about it uh, was irresponsible or clumsy. Um, but however, it did result in a change in law. We changed things because it was such a backlash to the public learning what the intelligence state was, the intelligence apparatus was doing. So, um, Joe, I'd love for you to share your perspective on that, and then and then maybe we can move on to TikTok after after that. That that sounds great. Well, let me start by saying that the Snowden case is really you know, fascinating and raises a number of serious kind of questions. Uh, and I'm going to, rather than give declaration of statements, we're just going to ask questions for a moment. Uh, substantive questions, like how much should the government be able to surveil? What information should the government be allowed to conceal about what it's doing? What democratic guardrails can be put in place to ensure that national security concerns don't erode transparency that we need for a democracy to function? For the public to know the facts that are necessary to hold government accountable and make informed decisions. And, you know, famed First Amendment lawyer Jeffrey Stone kind of gives a, he gives a hypothetical uh, that I think tees up the tensions really nicely. And it's not the Stone case, but it illustrates why these are such difficult calls. His hypothetical talks about what if someone wanted to publish a study that revealed the weaknesses of security or nuclear power plants. On the pro side, that kind of information could lead the public to pressure government officials to actually fix the problem if there's some kind of latency there. Uh, on the con side, you could be showing our enemies where we're vulnerable. And there isn't an easy answer to which one of the pros or cons always needs to Trump. But interestingly enough, you know, the case law has not allowed the government to engage in prior restraints of the press for publishing information along these lines. Now, it still allows for potentially the prosecution and the punishment of the people who leaked confidential information. Because if you had access to confidential information, you could have acquired it by virtue of your employment. There's all kinds of reasons why you know, public employees have slightly restricted First Amendment rights to begin with, and why you can contractually agree to waive some First Amendment rights. So that's an open-ended question. In the Pentagon Papers case, you know, you never got that far because there was government misconduct in the prosecutions. So we never kind of resolved that question. But, um, but you know, the Snowden case perfectly illustrates that problem. But I would like to respond to just one quick thing that Hagar said, which you know, is about the, you know, the 
good motives of national security apparatus. And, and I don't doubt that that is the default, that that's, you know, the, the mostly what is going on. Uh, but history has not, you know, borne that out. You know, we have a history here in the United States that shows that law enforcement has used surveillance improperly uh, to monitor and even blackmail civil rights leaders, you know, from MLK to Black Panther members, et cetera. And, you know, a chicken and the egg, you know, if they're not doing it now, maybe it's because of the public scrutiny, the criticism and the civil liberties advocates that fought back and that continue to be watchdogs here uh, to make sure that there's someone who's shedding some light on these questions. So uh, with that, you know, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll yield back the mic. Okay, I do want to get to TikTok. I, I guess maybe I should just plant a bookmark here, uh, Hagar, and maybe we can come back to it. Because one of the things I was just thinking as Joe was talking is how you know we've had conversations recently on the show about how important it is for the United States to model the values that we're advocating the rest of the world adopt, especially when we're uh, when we're waving the flag of democracy in developing countries or in countries uh, under authoritarian control. Um, just how damaging it is when we betray our own values. And I wonder sort of how you think about that dynamic playing out in our own tension between protecting individual rights and national security. And you don't have to answer right now, but just be thinking about that because I'm sure we'll we'll come back to it. Um, but let's start with the concerns over TikTok. Yeah. Can you um, lay out what the national security concerns around having a company that's so close to the CCP um, we know there's a high-ranking CCP member on the parent company's three-person board. Um, what are the risks? What are the concerns uh, about controlling user data and having the ability to control what users see in the feeds? Sure, this is a fascinating topic, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna note that I myself have a TikTok uh, account even though I know the concerns, uh, the national security threats, which I think are very valid. So the national the the national security concerns boil down to two buckets. One of them is the ability uh, for the Chinese regime to collect data on the 150 million American users on TikTok. And that data could include, for example, bio data information, your location, and your browsing history. And then the other part is the ability it could offer the Chinese regime to use this platform and technology to push Americans in one way or another with misinformation. And with the development of AI and, and synthetic media and generative AI, that threat becomes all the more magnified, especially when we already know that, uh, that the Chinese government uses technology to both collect data on the United States, right? They've ha they hacked the uh, Office of Management Budget with, or, or have sought to steal other information. And we also already know that they interfered in our elections. And so given that, now there has been no evidence to the Chinese government so far using TikTok for that purpose to spread misinformation among uh, the, the 150 million users um, uh, or to push this, these kind of videos. It's that they could. We do have evidence of employees inside TikTok who were fired, by the way, for spying, for collecting data on four journalists. Those journalists came from BuzzFeed and from the Financial Times. And, um, and so we know that. There is also a 2017 law in China that requires businesses, and, and, and you already 
uh, highlighted this, but just to be clear, ByteDance owns TikTok. ByteDance is based in China. It is a Chinese company. Uh, there's a 2017 law in China that requires companies to hand over any kind of information if it is relevant to China's, quote, national security. And we already know that China's definition of national security, and by the way, I think this would be the case for most countries, their definition of national security is very broad and it can be interpreted in any way, shape or form. Meaning if the Chinese government goes to ByteDance and says, we need XYZ information because it's tied to our national security. ByteDance has no choice but to turn that information over. Um, and as you said, there have been multiple signs of um, CCP ties uh, to, to ByteDance. So the threats here, though, those are the threats. It's tied to collecting personal information on the 150 million American users and offering this ability to use a tech platform that is so popular here to push misinformation to, to achieve some kind of political or economic or ideological goal. And when you say biodata, can you just be clear about what what do you mean by biodata? Sure, biodata is is um, your birthday, your name, your address, all that the information that identifies who you are, and that can be risky. You don't want you don't want that in general uh, in the public. You certainly don't want it in the hands of a foreign adversary because they could uh, they could it could lead to identity theft. It could lead to m- multiple multiple problems, um, and so that that's what biodata is. Okay, sorry. I thought you meant biological data, and I was like, "Wait, how are they getting my uh, my 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 blood type?" Oh, no, 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 but <laughs> I'm sure, if they sought that out, they'd find a way to get it. But but yeah, that's what yeah. I meant. Sorry. Uh, okay, so Joe, before we then get to the TikTok, uh, the Restrict Act specifically, can you give us the status quo on how courts currently determine if and whether those concerns, the concerns Hagar just raised, for example, could justify restricting speech? Absent new legislation, where does the law stand now? Well, as I was saying before, the courts have not allowed us to prosecute news reporters for publishing uh, information, which I think is a pretty strong signal that in order to survive constitutional muster, any restrictions that deal with the speech aspects as opposed to the acquiring of confidential information are going to have to survive heightened and even strict scrutiny, which means narrowly tailored uh, in the least restrictive means possible to achieve that goal. And that's the that's the problem here. And I want to talk about two of the motives that Hagar was discussing here with respect to TikTok, because I think they bring up different legal questions. Let me just start with an opening caveat, which is I don't want to discount the importance of the national security concerns here, but they're not on equal footing. For example, one of the two concerns that was raised was about TikTok being used as a propaganda device. Now, I'm not going to tell you that it's impossible to use propaganda in a way that fractures our society, makes us more polarized, plants doubts in our minds about what's fact and what's fiction in a way that causes real harms. And in fact, you know, the brilliant Jonathan Rauch has a new book called The Constitution of Knowledge, you know, that discusses that particular problem and it's very real. But to some extent, all political advocacy is propaganda in one way or another. 
And that rationale has never been enough to justify a prior restraint. And that is, you know, preventing arguments to be made in the first place. Now, the other rationale that does have a stronger basis uh, in, in in law that isn't the propaganda, but is the collection of privacy data and what could be done with that data is one that civil libertarians need to take very seriously uh, because that threat could cause more serious harms. But the question then is, can you find a solution that narrowly tailors to that problem without causing the free speech problems? And blanket bans just don't do that. They're just by their nature, not uh, not narrowly tailored in a way that setting universal privacy standards you know, as a requirement could solve a problem instead. Okay. So that brings us to the RESTRICT Act. And now that I have the acronym in front of me, it's the Restricting the Emergence of Security Threats that Risk Information and Communications Technology Act, or the RESTRICT Act. So this is the bill in the Senate that would give the Commerce Department the ability to ban TikTok, just a blanket ban. This is a bipartisan bill that was introduced by Senator Mark Warner of Virginia and has 25 co-sponsors. 13 of them Republicans, 11 of them Democrats, and Angus King, who's an independent. Some of the notable co-sponsors are John Thune, Tammy Baldwin, Joe Manchin, Michael Bennett, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, Shelley Moore Capito, Chuck Grassley, John Hickenlooper, Tom Tillis, Lindsey Graham, and Mark Kelly. These are not uh, ignorant people when it comes to the law and certainly not uh, constitutional guarantees. Senators J.D. Vance, Rand Paul, and Josh Hawley have been vocal opponents of the bill. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has also criticized the measure. And the White House has backed the bill, but organizations like the ACLU and FIRE have raised concerns on First Amendment grounds. So, Joe, why don't you tell us what what the Restrict Act actually does? The first thing that it does is it designates certain countries as foreign adversaries. China, Cuba, Iran, North Korea, uh, the current Venezuelan regime, and then gives the Secretary of Commerce this blanket authority to add new foreign adversaries to that list. And then with that list, it says that if there's a company with certain tech, and it could be an internet platform like TikTok, it could be hardware like your cell phone or your router you know, or your modem that has, that's owned and has a controlling interest by one of those foreign entities, then the Secretary of Commerce has pretty broad authorities to shut it down or take other kind of measures uh, to respond to threats that could be caused when our enemies are controlling that information. Some of the problems with the bill, if you want me to go into them now. Well, um, let's let's hold those for just a moment, because what I'm curious about, before we get into the problems with what it does, um, Hagar, I will say, you know, at, at first, at first blush, when, when we began talking about banning TikTok, I was pretty sympathetic to the, to the motive anyway. And it seemed to me quite reasonable to designate foreign adversaries like China, Iran, North Korea, et cetera. Um, so I wonder, and Russia, uh, I wonder just at first glance, what did you think about this effort? Um, and, uh, you know, and then maybe we'll get into some of the problems or ways that this could go differently. But how were you thinking about the bill first being introduced and especially the long list of um, 
serious co-sponsors it came with. It is. I think that's a really important point. I was very struck by the bipartisanship behind this bill, the bipartisan support behind it, and the fact that the White House is in support of it as well. Um, the, the U.S. government has already banned TikTok on government devices. That makes perfect sense to me, having, again, having been on the other side. Um, and many governments have done that, by the way, across, around the world, uh, in Europe, in Asia, in, in Australia, New Zealand, they have done the same, the, the, the same move. This is not a, a threat that we are unique in identifying. So the bipartisanship nature of it, I think, is, is, is notable. I also think, by the way, <laughs> I had no idea that both J.D. Vance and Alexand- Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez both are opposed to it. That's possibly the only time they'll agree on anything. Um, but that to me also highlights two extremes, right? They, those are folks that sit on on two extremes on the political spectrum, um, opposite extremes. But anyway, uh, as, a, as a side note. So that, uh, that struck me. I would also, I would also say that while it's not a fair, a totally fair comparison, um, China does not allow American apps inside China. They don't have access to YouTube or or uh, th- uh, things like that. Instagram, for example, unless unless individuals have a VPN to go over a, a firewall, and there are reasons for that. It's that they don't want. Uh, their people to see uh, how things are outside. They don't. They think that democracy is a threat to their own power, to the th- to the longevity and power of the Chinese Communist Party. And there are many reasons why. But and so we're here. We're talking about a company that is uh, that is Chinese. And so it's it's a very and and whether it's Chinese or any foreign adversary, I think that's very fair. I don't think that we can we can we should be light or that we shouldn't take seriously the threats coming from foreign adversaries. There are nowadays tools that they can use to undermine our democracy, to divide Americans, to steal data, to undermine the U.S. government, to steal money when it comes, right? Like when you're talking about ransomware attacks, these are not, I'm I'm not trying to sound alarmist. These are real threats that we see over and over and over again. And so when you have and this issue has been growing, by the way. This issue has been growing since the days of the Trump administration. And I remember when Trump came out with it, I kept thinking to myself, all right, dude, if the Chinese government wants to steal my information, they're going to be able to steal my information whether or not I'm on TikTok. So, you know, cool, slow your roll. And and then the Biden administration used it as part of their campaign to say, you know, we're going to keep TikTok. We wouldn't ban TikTok. And then the Biden officials come into office and all of a sudden, when they are privy to all of the threats posed through this app, now all of a sudden they're all on board. The, the, the last point I want to make here that I found that has struck me, aside from that bipartisanship support, is that there is, and I would love Joe's thoughts on this, um, because I know the word precedent is more legal here, but it feels as though there's precedent in the national security world to ban, well, we haven't banned a free app, I don't think, but we have on one hand banned the sale of Huawei products in the United States for national security threats. That's one. And second, CFIUS, which is the Committee on Foreign Investments in the United States. Wow, can't believe I remembered that. Thank God. <laughs> okay, so that's the body that gets to oversee whether or not a foreign transaction is valid. That's right. right? Or, or that's right. And they're the ones doing the review on whether they can or should push, uh, force a sale of TikTok. They already did that with Grinder, which is a gay dating app, which was owned by a Chinese gaming company. 
And when they did that, there were conditions placed that the, the, the Chinese company uh, couldn't steal the information and so on. There were all these protections put in place. So my view is also that there's been precedent for either taking action to prevent certain products because of national security concerns, and number two, to force the sale of Chinese companies uh, for free apps that the United that Americans want and that are interested in, and I think there's a lot of money there at stake. But anyway, I'm going down another like beyond your question. The key thing here is that this has been going on. This discourse has been going on for a while, and I only see more and more officials on both sides of the aisle in a in a in a in a political environment where bipartisan support is rare, and all I see is more a, gr- a louder louder support for a move to ban TikTok. And that to me tells me there are threats there that are more serious than I know sitting out on the outside. Hmm. Okay, Joe, before you respond to the precedent question, especially, um, which I which I really want to hear, I just want to interject one, one, one simple point for our listeners here, which is that, you know, you may be coming from the center left or from the center right. And depending on where you're coming from, you may be alarmed that you might find yourself identifying with AOC's position on this or J.D. Vance's position on this. And I want to just make a point here. That's okay. It needs to be okay. And we should be uh, subjecting our preferences and our opinions here to clear-eyed analysis and not uh, positionality which is one of the most problematic things about the way our politics and our discourse works. Now, if this person doesn't like it, then I probably should like it, and vice versa. So I just want to put that on the table. It doesn't matter who you agree with here or who you disagree with here. What matters is the principles and how you got to that conclusion, the, ra- the, the reasoning, rather. So um, uh, I, I am, you know, frankly, surprised, disappointed, alarmed that somebody like Mitt Romney, who I respect a lot because he's so thoughtful, is a sponsor on this bill, not just sitting back considering, but is actually a sponsor of the bill. So, um, so I just want to put that on the table. And Joe, over to you on on the precedents that uh, that Hagar brought up and and whether and how they uh, they're at play here. Well, first, I don't know that they have any legal significance because failure to do the right thing the first time doesn't mean that you're never allowed to do the right thing again later on, but. Aside from that point, the question isn't an all-or-nothing exchange of can we do nothing about potential threats that TikTok causes. The question is, is this solution that's put on the table in the Restrict Act the right one? Is it off by a mile? Is it off by an inch? Because really, details do matter here. So for example, the bill has really massive penalties you know, up to a million dollars in fine, up to $250,000 uh, in a penalty per each instance of a violation of the act uh, as just one example of what the stakes are, but also 20 years in jail. And the target of it, regardless of what the bill sponsor says, is any person that you know causes a violation of the act, including a very broad blanket provision about taking actions to kind of get around and the goal of the act. So, you know, that language alone, whether it was intended to operate this way or not, I doubt it was intended to operate this way, but it on its face does allows a user who uses a VPN to be subject 
to that kind of penalty. 20 years in jail, $250,000 in fine. I mean, that's ruinous for almost all of us. So, you know, with constitutional rights, you have to get it exactly right um, at the end of the day. So that's not to say that there isn't a way that Congress can tackle whatever real problems they know about TikTok, but the burden is on the government to demonstrate the case that Hagar just tried to lay out a moment ago in terms of what TikTok is actually doing, uh, as opposed to just trust us, national security, and therefore we can do what we want. Because removing a platform is an extraordinary step that chills a tremendous amount of speech because there are millions of people who use that as an avenue to communicate with each other. And I don't have a TikTok account. Uh, you know, I because I am concerned about the national security reasons. I find, you know, the potential problems that might be there to be enough that I have no interest in in being on it. Um, but a lot of people, including Agar, make the opposite conclusion even with that information of the potential threats. Yeah, our our good friend of the pod, John Cipher, who couldn't be here today, uh, told me to delete it from my phone. I haven't had it on <laughs> on since then. Um, uh, veteran at CIA. Um, um, I want to just touch on some of the other concerns you raised uh, about this so that we get them on the table for for listeners to understand. We talked about the ability for individuals to be targeted under this legislation, but it also constitutes a blank check to ban entire platforms the way the legislation is currently written. Um, it, the risk assessment is very subjective. Uh, there are no set standards or guardrails, and there's uh, a lack of transparency. So do you want to speak to any of those in more detail and and maybe the you know what you see as the most problematic uh, design of this legislation and then and then we'll go over to you, Hagar. Yeah, I mean i'll I'll first I just want to talk about the blank check, yeah, you know that that because it's not you know, just it, TikTok. Yeah. That would be right, it, right, because it's you know any technology where there's an ownership stake or that legal obligation relationship with any foreign adversary, and again the the Secretary of Commerce can add anyone it wants, and you know it, it has a provision that says that Congress, through point, passing a joint resolution that's signed by the President, may reverse the Secretary's point of view. But when are you going to get the President to? reverse their own commerce secretary unless you have a supermajority that can override a veto. So that I appreciate what they're trying to do to build an accountability, but it's illusory. Uh, but you know the the bill says that the secretary may undertake any other action as necessary to carry out the responsibilities under this act that is not otherwise prohibited by law. Any <laughs> other act that's necessary unless there's case law that already prohibits it. I mean, really, I mean, there's no, as you just laid forth, restrictive rule here. There's no transparency into how that process is going to take place, and there's no guardrails. So it's not that you can't create something that does tackle these problems in a narrowly tailored way, but we have to evaluate the language that's in front of us and the Restrict Act. I mean, gosh, they named it the Restrict Act, emphasizing how much speech is being restricted here, for gosh sakes. Uh, you know, it, this doesn't cut it. Yeah. Okay, Hagar, any other thoughts on, on this topic about what the bill does? And then at, at, I do want to get to how we could change it to be more narrowly targeted 
to to satisfy both both concerns here. But before we do that, any other thoughts? Yeah, my main thought actually was I wanted to hone in on this point that Joe made about chilling speech, and um, and that because to me, the argument between banning TikTok and freedom of speech, I personally don't see the connection because there are so many other platforms and ways in which an American citizen can exercise their right to freedom of speech. There are numerous other social media platforms. They can write, they can go to the town hall and scream if they want, um, not fire, but you know, other things. And so that's the why I struggle with this argument is that it feels I just, I don't know. I have not convinced yet. And now, like I said, again, I'm not a legal expert, but the connection between both to me, the national security threat, I completely see, even though I have a TikTok account, I have an account and I will explain why I made that decision. It's because it's for two reasons. One, because my media uh, brand targets an audience that largely lives on TikTok and gets their news from TikTok. So that's one. And then the second reason is that Having sat on the other side of government, I'm also pretty much aware that if the Chinese government wanted to take my information, it would be very easy for them to, to, to do so whether or not I have a TikTok account. And so that's why I made that decision. But um, that said, the national security argument makes sense to me. The freedom of speech one I find difficult only for that reason, that it's, 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 a, it's a personal decision. And to go on TikTok, to make an account on TikTok, to voice your, your, your speech on TikTok. And so why would taking it away chill speech or, or prevent someone from exercising their freedom of speech when they could easily do it elsewhere on platforms that are just as similar? So that's, yeah. So back to Joe. I think I can connect those dots because in other areas of First Amendment law, we grapple with figuring out what the government can do to restrict speech in certain areas. When it's about regulating expression in public spaces, it's called forum analysis. And the analogy to kind of think through is a governor's office is a publicly owned space, but it isn't there for public expression. It's there for the governor to get the governor's work done. So you don't have free and robust free speech rights there because it's not a public forum. But on the sidewalks where you expect to have expression, expect to see protests, it's a traditional public forum where the rules are pretty broad. And in those kind of spaces, the government can still engage in some restrictions. It's not all or nothing, but they have to be narrowly tailored in furtherance of a compelling interest. And you know they have to be content and viewpoint neutral. And they have to leave open, ample alternative modes for communication. So you couldn't say Democrats may speak their mind here, but Republicans can't. Um, and you know, and and when they are, you know, re- so restrictive, they have to be the least restrictive means necessary is accomplishing that compelling interest. So here, when you apply it to the situation with TikTok, Hagar talked about the fact that there are all of these ample alternative modes for communication, but that's only one part of the prong. That's only one prong there. And the reason why she chooses to still be on it is because that's where her audience is. So that's the stakes here. You're shutting down an avenue where the audience is. She has personal stakes, but so do everyone else who's 
been a TikTok influencer or what, whatever they call themselves these days that's invested their time, energy, and their career in building their following. I know that, Ron, you've invested a lot of time in developing a following here. And if this platform was shut down, that would have a massive consequence to your ability to connect with those subscribers, even if they might choose to find you elsewhere. Um, so that's really why there is a free speech interest. But again, this isn't all or nothing. It's not that Congress can do nothing about it. It's that they have to really fix these problems that we're complaining about, that we're identifying um, before they should enact it. Because if they don't, it will be unconstitutional. And unconstitutional laws never further the, the public's interest because they get struck down. And then you're still not you know, accomplishing the goal that the national security apparatus wants to accomplish years later. And you've lost all that time. I want to get into now how we might, how Congress could change either the language in this legislation to better protect free speech rights um, or just start from scratch with a brand new model to deal with the national security threats that have been raised about TikTok. But before we do that, Joe, um, the tension here echoes one of your areas of expertise, which is speech codes on college campuses. And you mentioned that during our our, our prep, and I think maybe understanding how they're similar might illuminate some of the legal principles at play here. Could you briefly walk through uh, what speech codes were, are, and and draw the parallels for us? Yeah. When we talk about speech codes, what we're talking about are policies that would regulate more speech than the First Amendment would allow. Policies in our realm at FIRE, where for the last 20 plus years we had been focusing on higher education and free speech concerns. Plug for us for a moment. Uh, last year, we expanded our mission to include free speech advocacy for society you know, as a whole. But there on college campuses where we've developed you know, our decades of experience and expertise, we're really focusing on the written policies that restrict speech. And here, whenever you're passing a law you know, that's put into statute that has the force of law by its definition. You are talking about comparing what people are allowed to do, what they're allowed to express themselves to something that is in writing, that is a fixture. And one of the things that First Amendment jurisprudence requires is that laws cannot be vague and they cannot be overbroad when they restrict speech. So you want to make sure there's a certain degree of clarity. And when you have a process that gives that blank check we were talking about earlier, without those guide rails, you're almost never going to satisfy the overbreath concerns or the vagueness concerns. And that's really one of the key problems here. Okay. So um, one, of the, one of the things that sort of jumped out about what you said previously there um, is there's actually, a, you know, why there's a free speech concern around this legislation is that if you, if you believe, as I do, as, as Hagar does, I think as, as we all do, that there is an, a national security problem with TikTok, that it's actually in all of our best interest to make changes to this approach so that it holds up in court, right? It's not just a tension between the First Amendment and national security. It's that addressing the First Amendment concerns actually allows the national security concerns to be addressed. Uh, so, what are some ways, and maybe Hagar, maybe we start with you and then we can have a collaboration here, but what are some ways Congress could change the language in the, in the legislation to, to better protect free speech rights? What, what might a more collaborative approach 
look like? How are you thinking about that? You know, so quickly before I jump into that, I really want to say how much I appreciate Joe's explanation of the connection to free speech, because it I really helped. Me. I have I have been seeing over and over, and I just keep thinking it's some kind of talking point, like an argument, you know, against this. And and I should and I will insert my own opinion here that I do not want to see a TikTok ban. Um, and I just believe that if 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 we work hard enough at it, we can figure out a solution as well. Um, but uh, so I really appreciate that connection. My my show is on YouTube. If if YouTube were to somehow be banned for some reason, it would be devastating to my brand, to my business. Yes, I could put my show on my own website or divide it up on Instagram. I don't know, whatever. Inherently, I would, I would hit, I would suffer a major hit and that would be awful. And you're talking about one me, small creator there's, and this gets me to the point to Ron, to your question, which is that the reason I don't want to see TikTok get banned is because there is so much money there at stake. And I'm talking about the money that creators on the platform have made, the careers they've made for themselves. The creator economy is growing rapidly by the year. And it's, and it's remarkable. And it's awesome, by the way. Um, especially on TikTok yeah, versus other platforms. Yes, especially yeah. on TikTok. Especially on TikTok. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I love me the other, some of the other platforms, but doing videos and editing on TikTok is the easiest and is it's, it lends itself to creation. It really does to, to something that's unique and creative and artistic. And there is a reason why there is such a huge, such a massive amount of Americans on there, particularly a young audience. And that matters. And so I think there's too much money there at stake, too much money for these creators, um, for the lives they built for themselves, the businesses they've created, too much money for the industries, for the advertisers, too much money for TikTok itself. And which is why also I think that there should be an incentive there to figure out a solution rather than a blanket ban. I will also say, Joe, I had no idea about those fines. Those fines um, really, they're a little creepily authoritarian <laughs> because if you do that kind of behavior in Russia or China where you bypass firewalls to access Instagram, for example, the, I don't know that it's a financial fine, but, but the, but the, um, the risk to you is, is great. And I don't think that that's the type of message that we should be giving from the U S government. I mean, I understand why they want to find ways to, to deter people from, from accessing it if they've banned it. But that said, I think these fines sound a little bit much. Um, but anyway, I, I, I can just submit real quick. Please. I'm sorry to interrupt it. I, I try hard not to, but I, Senator Markey says that that's not how the, how it, that operates that it only targets the platforms. I don't agree when I read the language, but what that gives me one piece of optimism is that if that's what they intend, that only the platforms themselves, only the company that you know is producing the router can be hit with these fines if they're just trying to you know get around the enforcements, that's a different story, and that can be fixed. So to answer Ron's question that he teed up for us, are there ways that can be improved? Well, that's one thing, but the language now doesn't do it. So that's why we're criticizing, sorry, what's in the bill that's right. now. And so, and and that's, so I, yeah, I, I, thought, I thought that was um, stunning. Uh, and I, I understand what you mean. So if, if Apple... Uh, on its iPhone, still sold the app, then then or st still offered it for downloading, then it would be uh, subject to these fines. But you're right, like you, you, as you said, the vagueness is is a little concerning. So if I were to think of ways, in my view, there are two paths, um, and I, I don't necessarily have um, 
I think I would prefer one of them. But anyway, let's play this out a little bit. Two paths. One is you could reform this bill to be more about, um, to be, to, in, to install regulations and systems and oversight to prevent whether it's TikTok or any social media platform from allowing disinformation on its platforms, um, requiring them to have certain tools or technology or so on to, because that's what we're talking about, right? And again, I don't want to be over naive when it comes to a company that's owned by the, by the Chinese government, but still, um, you could require that. Um, so you could try and find a way, again, I'm probably restricting free speech here, but I, <laughs> I believe very deeply that social media platforms should have a responsibility to do that. So you could try to do that. Now, this, this, this means that you're saying that TikTok would be allowed to survive as, as a Chinese-owned entity, and, but that if you're going to operate in the United States, you and all the other social media platforms must abide by rules X, Y, Z. And those rules should be in place, whether it's regarded, related to where data is stored, uh, how data is accessed, um, use of that data, uh, advertising, um, and, uh, and how disinformation and misinformation is not allowed to proliferate on the, on the platform. So that's one. The other path is regarding a sale. And, and perhaps I'm naive on this, but this, my opinion has always been that because of the money at stake, that the, int the best option would be a forced sale. Now, I'm going to get, uh, let me veer a little bit into the national security world for a second. Right now, where things are between the United States and China, um, a forced sale may not necessarily go through, even though there's so much money at stake. We are in a position where it's heightened competition. Things are particularly tense between the United States and China. And the Chinese government views the U.S. focus on TikTok as nothing more than an effort to hit China economically. They don't view the national security threats as real at all. They don't care. They, and we saw it when, when their CEO testified on the Hill. He, he really failed to convince Congress of TikTok's views, but that's because it's like two ships sailing in the night. China has a problem with this, the Chinese government, because it, it, they view it, like I said, as an, as an effort on the part of the U.S. government to hit China where it hurts as one of the economic efforts we're trying to do. And so it's possible that a sale may never happen, but that's what I would prefer to see because I just, because then it just, it automatically, we, we get over this hump of trying to regulate them as a Chinese entity. And then we can just lump them in with the other social media, American social media companies that Congress is trying to regulate for other reasons. And I, I do believe that we could get there and that that would be preferable because otherwise it's so complicated and so difficult, given it's a Chinese entity, to ensure they follow American regulations or procedures that they would put in place for social media companies. I think I think Joe is going to tell us how far off into unconstitutional la la land your idea of misinformation and disinformation is because it's still protected speech. Uh, somebody's misinformation <laughs> is another person's uh, truth brigade, and so Joe's um, like you I don't know, worked okay. in national security <laughs> way too long. <laughs> I, I, I I'll leave it to you, Joe. But um, uh, Ron, you with your predictive powers, <laughs> you should consider. A second career in I the circus. I saw him making a face at one Joe, point. Joe was making a face. Fact, I was like, I knew I was going somewhere said, wrong. I did. I, 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 I apologize for that. But it. L let me start by saying that I do think that there are ways that the government can 
tinker with this law in important, meaningful ways that could solve some of its free speech problems. I have not consulted with other free speech lawyers who deal with this intersection with national security for years and years and decades to say with confidence that my three pieces of advice would solve all of the problems. There still wouldn't be additional ones that I'm not thinking of today. But the three things that I would address up front is, first of all, fixing that penalty provision that we were discussing. That's low-hanging fruit because it's easy to do. You know, they can talk about who specifically may be fined in more explicit and narrow, clear terms. They could also just set across the board foreign, domestic, it doesn't matter who, privacy standards about what different tech is allowed to do in terms of the data it can collect in the first place and what it can use with the data that it has. And I think the American public would support that. People on all parts of the political spectrum can see value in that. And then it could be transparent about what it's looking for and what it is doing uh, when it gets information about someone violating those privacy rules. Here, it's just unrestrained and open-ended, and I've used the phrase blank check quite a few times uh, in this hour uh, because it really doesn't have many limitations. So I think with those three important changes, you're in a different world of analysis uh, when it comes with the constitutionality. And again, caveat, there could be other problems I'm not thinking about. But I, I don't know enough about forced sales to weigh in on whether or not I think that's a good idea, a bad idea, constitutional or unconstitutional. I just don't know. Uh, so I can't editorialize there. But I can say with disinformation, you know, very famously, I think I, I wish, you know, we would all ingrain this, you know, famous notion that the problem with uh, bad speech can only be solved with more speech because sunlight's the best disinfectant. And when we start empowering the government to decide what is true and what is false such that it can be kept out of the marketplace of ideas to begin with, that the public can't make up its own mind on that, we're in some serious uh, problems and we're inviting tremendous ab abuses that on a long enough timeline will absolutely be realized. So um, I just don't trust that as a solution, and I don't think the courts would uh, trust that. If there was a way to make it even more unconstitutional, that would be it. <laughs> I have, I have, I, well, well, well said, and and uh, I I share the same concern. I have one question I just want to put on the table for both of you. What do you think? Um, because you know, I don't think that Senator Romney, for example, is oblivious to the constitutional principles that you are articulating here. What do you think is motivating such a bipartisan group of senators that's so large to get on board with something like this? Well, one, I think that they're persuaded by the problem. And I think that Hagar mentioned earlier that they have more information than we have. So maybe they see the problem as being even larger than I believe you know, it may be. So I think that's 
you know, the the first reason that I would guess. And again, of course, I'm guessing because I'm not in any of their minds. Uh, but I also think that being involved and having ownership of the bill at introduction doesn't mean that you will be with it all the way through the bitter end and be un- open to reforms to improve it or fix problems with it. So I don't think that any of the senators who are co-sponsors here are just lost causes who don't get the constitutional issues. I think they're signaling that they want to do something to fix the problem that they're identifying, and this is the vehicle they're getting behind because it's not as raw a tool as Montana's SB 419 that just says TikTok is banned, period. So I think they're looking at a framework and coming to a, a way to to give administrations the power to deal with companies that they see are bad actors. And I think that that's the end of the analysis for them at this stage of the legislative process, which is long. Okay, Hagar, do you do you agree with that? Do you see it differently? Do you hear anything else? Is it is this sort of like a um, a posturing move, a messaging bill at this point? More than more than you know, it's hard to imagine especially the more conservative senators on this side, wanting to uh, essentially give such enormous power to the administration or to the executive branch. Um, we, you know, it's just surprising to me. So do you see it the same way? You know, one of the things that I thought of as we were talking about this is that is how each party has been posturing themselves on the U.S.-China relationship. And right now, it's very fascinating because they're kind of trying to out-hawk each other, even though that's not typical for, for Democrats. But it's clear they see that that's what resonates with the American public. And so I thought about that with this one. Are they trying to do the same thing? Is this an effort for both parties to posture publicly, like you said, messaging? It's in advance of an election next year. And say, you know, look at us, you know, combating these threats. Um but I don't think so because I, while I would expect that if there were some bill about sanctioning China, for example, then yes, I would, I would say yes. But for this one, I don't think so. And I wanted to make sure that I was right about the White House support for this um, bill. And they do endorse, they did endorse it. And I just want to read what it said. So the White House endorsed the Restrict Act, calling it a quote, a systemic framework for addressing technology-based threats to the security and safety of Americans. And okay, great. Now that's that's a great talking point. But again, this is in the run-up to an election um, where you have almost half of the American population on this platform where the youth is on it. The youth, young Americans feel very strongly about it being there and where Biden himself in the campaign before he won in 2020 said he would keep it. He did it as an effort to take a different position than Trump. And so the fact now that you've got these factors, you have an an election coming up, you've got all these people on this platform. The fact that you've got this bipartisan support. The fact that the administration itself, which has even more insight than most of the committees on in, in Congress, not all of them, there are some committees that that get, you know, if, if it's this issue, they'll probably see most of the same things, but not everything. And so the fact that you've got the White House, the president who sees everything saying this or coming out with this position to me speaks volumes. Uh, about about where they are on this and how serious they are. Um, they, one thing is very clear is that something will happen on this by the end of the year. 
whether it's that they pass this bill, whether they try and force a sale. I don't know what's taking CFIUS so long, by the way, and or what, um, uh, or whether they amend the bill, as 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 Joe mentioned. Uh, not with my misinformation, disinformation prong, though I still like it, though I could see why, <laughs> I could see why that, and I, I do want to caveat that I am incredibly in favor of freedom of speech as someone who sits outside the government and voices my opinion publicly on a regular basis. I just also really think that there should be measures in place to prevent charlatans from, you know, from swaying the public with fake news. But that's a separate story. <laughs> we could that is a separate podcast. So platforms are perfectly within their constitutional rights to to impose those standards themselves yeah, without government. Yeah. Sure. So that's that's what strikes me. I just I think this train is moving, and uh, and 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 something will happen, and that that support. But I do wonder. I mean, Joe. So if 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 there's let's pretend the Restrict Act passes. And um, nothing has changed. So then would you see like a slew of lawsuits likely coming out afterward? Mm. Absolutely. You know, the lawsuits start off with a pretty strong degree of success because of how much expression is restricted, uh, which automatically kicks up the scrutiny level that the court is going to have to apply. So... You know, I, I think that I I don't think that this is just political posturing, at least, you know, maybe there are one or two co-sponsors for whom that's why they're on it. But I think that by and large, there's a problem that they're trying to address, uh, that they're trying to think through. And, you know, all I would say about the disinformation and misinformation part is not that, you know, your support for that idea makes you an enemy of free speech, uh, but that we all have all of us have our blind spots. And I think this is one, you know, if I were to, you know, point a finger and allege it, I think this is, may, might be yours. Um, just because, just, just because when you slow down and think about it, everyone thinks the other side is misinforming uh, and providing disinformation. Everyone thinks that about their political adversaries. And it's just impractical to make that the, to make that the line. Um, it's just not workable. So what I would encourage of all of us with our own bar blind spots, of course, you know, one day I'll identify mine, um, is that we should all slow down, look over our shoulders and check our mirrors to think through like, would we trust that power in our political adversaries hands? Like think of the, think of the politician you think is the absolute worst in the country, the one whose judgment you agree with less and their base and say, would you let those people, if they were in charge, decide what information is misleading and wrong and therefore shouldn't be in the marketplace of ideas? And I think that that's intolerable. And the courts, I think, would, would find that as well. Yeah. Do you want to briefly comment on uh, the Montana law, which is law now, and how you see that playing out in the courts? Because that's bound to be challenged as well, I imagine. Well, there have already been challenges by some users. Um, and I think... You know, it doesn't go into effect until January 1st. So if you're TikTok, you have some time to prepare what your legal arguments are going to be. Um, and you don't have to put it together in one or two days, but the, the bill's been pending for a while. So maybe they have been, and I would be surprised if they hadn't already been preparing it. Uh, I suspect that they will challenge it as well, again, because the sheer degree of speech that's regulated um, Questions about what it means for individual states to be able to decide what's allowed on the internet, what's allowed not on the internet, 
what kind of platforms and what it would mean if you have 50 different states passing 50 different rules. There's just a lot there. And I think it will have a hard time surviving constitutional scrutiny. Fire opposed it while it was pending. Um, and, you know, we're concerned about its its passage, but we also think there's very compelling, strong cases against it. And I doubt it will actually be allowed to uh, take effect on January 1st. Hagar, one more question to you, and it's sort of a curveball, but um, let's say the Restrict Act does pass in its current form, or or the U.S. does uh, take uh, what China would see as aggressive action to ban it. How do they respond? How does China respond? Yeah. Uh, I think they'll take, they'll try and find some other way to hit us economically. I think that, I don't think that there's a, they've already banned American social media platforms inside China. Uh, so they've already done that. They'll probably seek some other kind of economic uh, effort, whether it's trade related or imports related, or, you know, we still trade a lot with China, a lot, which is also why, and again, I won't go down this rabbit hole, why I always have issue when when people talk about Cold War with China. I love to d- have the debate, but you're never going to have a Cold War the way we did with the Soviet Union because of how much we still economically depend on each other. Um, and that's a good thing usually, by the way, but uh, to have that kind of economic and trade relationship. Um, so I think that's what they'll do. They'll try and find other ways to prevent us from, for example, there are parts in our iPhones that come from China. That would hurt a lot if they were to prevent the United States from Apple from developing those products inside China and shipping them here. Apple would have to go elsewhere, which means your iPhone price would double, which means the American public would go nuts. And so that's one example. I certainly don't want to give ideas here, but (laughs) I do think that that's the type of stuff you would see. Yeah, just looking a little further down the road at, at you know what, how this could escalate the trade war. In a way, the trade kind of forces us to work through some of our issues together. I mean, it 100%. invites ways to manipulate on the margins in ways that are harmful, but also prevents the yes. biggest yeah. threat. It's true. Um, okay, I think that's about time for today. But Hagar and Joe, I have to say, this is one of the most satisfying conversations I've had uh, going deep on a, on a subject in a while. This has been really, really illuminating for me. So um, huge thank you to both of you for bringing all of your insights and knowledge to bear here. And uh, I hope we can do it again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And it was such a pleasure uh, meeting you both really and talking this through. I fully agree. And and I was going to say, Joe has really opened my eyes um, in a lot of ways. And that is the beauty of the conversations you host, Ron. This deep dive is unlike anything anywhere. So I'm really personally appreciative of it too. Thank you so much. All right. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks. Thank Bye. You. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, We'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. 
I'll see you in the next episode.